This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Just a side note, probably don't date that guy. Any 25-year-olds out there, it sounds like that's his type. Don't do it. Don't date him. He might kill you. are you today? Oh, I am good. Just, you know, living the dream, keeping the head above water, trying Mm -hmm. not to drown in life's complexities. (laughs) (laughs) So just a real chill day then so far, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I've been up since five. And then also, you know, had two people in the bed, actually three, including my husband. But, you know, who who ever remembers him anymore? I'm just (laughs) kidding. I love him so much. But yeah, it's it's a lot. We've got... Oh, man. We're just getting over colds and... Get, yeah, getting kicked in the head and while you're sleeping by children. And last night I woke up to Calvin pulling my hair, but it's okay. It's all good. You oh know my what? goodness! Joys of my life. <laughs> Joys of my life. This is great because this is my escape. Everyone, escape with us. Yes, come on this uh, this journey with us. We're actually going to flip the script on you guys today. We are. We thought you know um, our typical formula is Vanya tells you know, covers a rom-com, and then I attempt to tie in a true crime. And um, one of the guys at our network connected was like, have you guys ever thought about, like, Avrin tells Vanya a crime, and Vanya has to try to find a and movie like, to pair no, with it? No, we have not tried that yet, but Yeah, we, so thank you, Eli, yeah. for that idea. Eli and Steve. Um, so we thought we'd try it today. And I don't know what's been going on with me in terms of where my brain has been when I've been looking into true crime stories, but I'm clearly on a like unsolved mystery type of kick. Great, because I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you another story today that I that I can't give you a conclusion to. Okay. So last week we talked about the two Mary Morrises, who uh, neither of their murders has ever been solved, and today I'm going to tell you a, a story that comes from Australia, from Melbourne, Australia, which is the. Uh, mysterious death of Phoebe Hansjuk. Um, and this is in Australia, probably one of like the most well-known kind of unsolved mysteries. Oh, really? Yeah. It's um, it's a crazy story with a lot of, a lot of, you know, conspiracy theories, allegations of cover-ups, um, just all kinds of, you know, definitely a botched police investigation, which we'll get into. I'll, I'll take you through all of it. But I'm going to tell you the story of the mysterious and unsolved death of, well, I guess technically it has been solved, but not satisfactorily, of Phoebe Hanschuk. So Phoebe was, by all accounts, an incredibly um, artistic, creative, empathetic, passionate young woman. She was 24 years old. She was also like very active. Uh, She was taking martial arts courses and was like being fast tracked to get her black belt. As a young kid, she was very like outdoorsy, loved to climb trees, very energetic. She was the oldest of three. She had two younger brothers. She was very close to her family. She did though, however, um, struggle with uh, anxiety and depression, which she often self-medicated. So it was 
it was openly known that she did have issues with alcohol and drugs. Um, and as a young girl, you know, she was she was starting to kind of experiment with this stuff as young as 13, according to her friends, is when they would like start sneaking out and going out. And from a very young age, Phoebe became she's absolutely stunning. And we'll we'll post a photo on our Instagram sometime this week of pictures of Phoebe because she really is like she's beautiful. Um, and she kind of like knew that that she had this power uh. when it came to the opposite sex. Um, so her friends were saying like, even at the age of 13, like they'd go out to the clubs with, uh, you know, fake IDs and whatever with like $20 between the three of them and they would leave and they would have all be wasted because they would have had a ton of drinks and Phoebe would always have like a bunch of drugs that someone ha- would have given her. So oh. like they could just go out and like men would buy them drinks. And the legal also, creepy age men. 18 there. In, in yeah. And they were 13 Florida. when they started Jesus. hitting the clubs. Yes. There's also an interesting pattern, I guess, within the family of, you know, her mother, Natalie, married a man 14 years older than her. Her grandmother, Jeanette, married a man 11 years older than her. She had like a penchant for older men. When she was 16, she got into a relationship with a teacher who was twice her age. Oh, no. Um, And by all accounts, it was like a consensual loving relationship. He actually left the school that she attended where he was a teacher to work elsewhere so that they could be in a relationship, even though technically it was still illegal because she was 16 and it was 32. Um, And then she kind of continued to always date older men. Um, And at the time of her death at the age of 24, her partner was Anthony Hample, and he went by Ant. Uh, She was 23 when they started dating, and he was 40. Uh, She was working as a receptionist in a celebrity-like hair salon where he – Went to get his haircut because he was a very successful, um, like event, event guy. Like I can't remember if it was event planner or coordinator, but anyway, he worked with like major A list celebrities and like helped them plan their tours. So he worked with like Kylie Minogue and Michael Jackson and Nicole Kidman and like big time people. So he was a super successful uh, in the entertainment industry, but he also came from a really prominent. Melbourne family. His father, George Hample, was a retired um, Supreme Court judge. And his stepmother, Felicity, was like a sitting county judge. So big, you know, family in politics, prominent. um, And she was just kind of like swept up into this relationship. Uh, People thought for sure it wasn't going to last because they just seemed so different, not just the age difference but you know like they came from different backgrounds he was always like wanting to go to these fancy events and she was very much into like writing poetry and painting pictures and staying home and you know stuff like that but five months after they began dating she actually moved in with him um in his fancy she she high-rise apartment the Balencia um they he had a really like fancy apartment on the 12th floor of that building and um their relationship you know, at 18 months in, which is about how long they'd been together when Phoebe died, um, was rocky at best. And in, in fact, in the last six weeks of her life, she broke up with him four different times oh. in six weeks. And every time he managed to convince her to come back to him. Um, people say he was kind of controlling and possessive, obviously older, so much more assured and confident. And Phoebe described to her therapist a couple of times that she felt like their partnership wasn't equal and that he thought she was stupid and that he would, or he made her feel stupid. He would talk down to her, stuff like that. So um, I want to talk about the, basically the week that leads up to her death to kind of, kind of paint a picture, I guess, for everybody of like what was happening. So on Monday evening, Phoebe and Aunt go out to dinner with friends. And she had told him that she would try to, like, keep her drinking at a minimum. And I guess it didn't go well. She did not do that. She was getting very chatty and starting to share about, you know, some of her, like, anxiety and depression issues with the female at the dinner table. And Aunt was having none of it. And they got into a huge fight about her, like, being too drunk and oversharing. And so she was, like, F this, I'm going out. So they have a big fight at dinner. They come home. She calls her friend Bren. They meet up for drinks um, while they're together, and they're only together for like half an hour. Um, her phone is ringing constantly. 
aunt calls her something like 27 times Whoa. while she is with this guy. She eventually, like, she gets so pissed off, she throws her phone, like, in the street oh my and God. shatters the screen. Um, and then they go their separate ways. I think she makes her way to her her mom and her her mom's partner's home where Russell is the name of Natalie, her mom's partner. He makes her tea. They chat. And then she goes back to the apartment that she shares with aunt in the morning. Tuesday, she's kind of, you know, one of the things that she hated about like her drinking issue was not only that she couldn't really handle her liquor, like she it, she liked it, but it didn't like her is how mm. her family members described it. So after like two drinks, she would become noticeably impaired. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things she hated about it, though, was also how depressed she would feel after what she called like a night of heavy binge drinking. Um, and so she basically kind of went on this bender between Monday and Tuesday. So she's kind of just recovering from that. But then on Wednesday, she sends she, she sends out allegedly a very strange text on a like a family text. So she sends it to all the members of her family, to her boyfriend, aunt, to her boss and a couple of close friends. And I'm going to read you what this text says. It says, Hi, family. I'm in bed about to sleep. And when I wake, I will transform into the most incredible human being you've ever seen. Not. I will go to hospital. It's safer there. And I hear the special tonight is tomato soup. Delicious. Nutritious. I love you all very much, but not enough to send an individual text. Sorry about that. But time is sleep, and I must be on my way. Merrily, merrily, merrily. Life is but a dream. Whoa. So... This is sent at 10.30 a.m. on Wednesday, uh, December 1st, which is the day before she dies. Now, this is very troublesome to her family members. They're like, uh, that sounds strange and not at all, you know, like Phoebe. So they start trying to call. Eventually, Jeanette, the grandma, gets a hold of Aunt, her boyfriend, and he's like, I will check on her. I'm at work right now. She was just sleeping, like, when I left this morning, but I'll, you know, I'll check on it. And he says he's going to go home and, and check on her. We don't know if he ever actually did go home and check on her, but um, everybody seemed kind of placated by the fact that he would make sure she was okay. Uh, here's a weird thing I'm going to throw out there. In the investigation... Aunt says that he had taken her iPhone in to be repaired because remember she was she threw it in the street right on Wednesday. Like he took it to get fixed when he went to work on Wednesday. But then if he did that, how would she have sent this text? <gasps> right. So there's a little bit of a discrepancy there. Eventually, Aunt cha changes his story and says, "I guess I must have taken the phone in on Thursday." But at the beginning, he's adamant that he took the phone in on Wednesday. But then this text kind of makes. You know, did she send the text then? Like, what's the story with that? Um, so this text is sent. The day kind of goes by. Uh, the plan was that on Thursday, December 2nd, they were going to go. Aunt and Phoebe were going to go out to dinner with her dad, um, Len. It was for his birthday. They were going to go to the Golden Triangle, which was a Thai restaurant that Phoebe totally loved. And uh, her dad, you know, kind of figured, I guess I'll just see her tomorrow and we will, I'll make sure she's doing okay and we'll talk about this and, you know, maybe she, it's a cry for help, uh, but everything's going to be okay. So now we go to December 2nd, the day that Phoebe dies. At around 11, according to Aunt, he got up for work, left for work around 8.30 in the morning. At around 11.44, there was a fire alarm in the building where, like, everybody had to evacuate. Now, the building wasn't on fire. I guess there was some kind of construction stuff going on, and it set off one of the alarms. But there is CCTV video of Phoebe with the couple's dog walking out of the building with everybody else, waiting, you know, to get the all clear, and then heading back into the building around 11.51 a.m. That is the last sighting of Phoebe alive. So at around 6.09 p.m. that evening, Aunt gets home from work. Now, here's something else that's important to note. This is a super fancy luxury building, right? So they all have key fobs. You have to have a key fob to get to, you know, in. You have to have a key fob to get to your specific floor. And all of that is logged. Like there's a system that can actually see like this key fob was used at this time. So per those records, Aunt returns home from work at 6.09 p.m. Now, when he enters the apartment... Immediately, he's like, huh, 
it's like a wreck in the apartment. There's broken glass on the floor. There is a little bit of blood on the floor. There is a torn pillows on the couch. And there is a little bit more blood like on her computer, like mouse and mouse pad. And her purse, keys, and wallet are all sitting on the kitchen counter and her hair straightener is plugged in in the bathroom and turned on, but Phoebe is not there. At around like 6.40-ish, Len calls Phoebe's iPhone to check in, because remember, they're going to have dinner that night. Uh, Doesn't answer. Obviously, she doesn't answer the phone. He leaves a message. And then like three minutes later, Aunt calls Len and He's like, hey, I know we're supposed to have dinner tonight, but I just got home and Phoebe's not here. She can't have gone far because her keys are here. And like, as I mentioned before, you can't get in or out of the building without your keys. So she wouldn't have left the building specifically without those. Um, He's like, I don't know where she is. All her stuff's here, but she's not. Um, And Len's like, well, maybe you should call the police. Maybe something's wrong. And he's like, no, I can't call the police. You have to wait like 24 hours to report someone missing. Um, But I'll keep you posted. I don't know what this means for our dinner. So that seems very insensitive. And also, like, remember the scene I just described to you of what we walked into, right? Not just her stuff being there and her not being there, but there's broken glass on the floor. There's blood. And like, the I mean, clearly it looks like maybe there was a struggle or something went down. Um, But does he call the police or do anything like that? No. He um, orders takeout from the restaurant they were supposed to go have dinner at for one. He orders dinner for himself from the restaurant that he, Phoebe, and Len were supposed to go to and sits down and drinks a beer. That's, 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 that's. Uh, that's weird, right? And also, like, why wouldn't you Why would you order one if you are assuming she's going to come back? Right. And then you guys are going to go to dinner. Or two, if you figure, like, oh, maybe she's on another bender, but when she gets home, maybe she'll want some food. This is my living girlfriend. Like, I shouldn't be such an a-hole. Um, but he doesn't do that. He drinks beer and he orders dinner. Uh, for one. Meanwhile, the family kind of gets wind that Phoebe is can't be found for this dinner and that everything's kind of on hold until they hear from aunt about where she is and if she comes back. And it is only when, um, okay, sorry, pause. So this is from the perspective of like the family. Now I'm going to switch okay. to the perspective of um, the, the, the staff of the Valencia luxury apartment building. So the manager, Eric, was headed out because uh, his like one of his kids had like a music concert or whatever. So he told the um, scheduled concierge, this woman named Beth, I've got to run. But there was like something that needed to be cleaned up. And he's like, could you run down to the refuse room and grab a broom? And she's like, sure, no problem. And Eric heads out. So she heads down to the uh, garbage room. And when she goes to open the door, she can't open it. Something is like in front of the of the door. So then she pushes it, you know, like with all of her might and she's able to kind of get it open and she sees the form of a body, which initially she thinks must be like a mannequin because I don't know, maybe somebody had a mannequin and threw it away. But then she realizes that the mannequin is bleeding. So she immediately calls police. She's very, very, very distraught. Um, Police arrive. They, cordon off the scene obviously as a a crime scene and um it's about the same time so that's about seven o'clock right that her body is found and police arrive on scene the way it's described is she's found lying face up around with several like you know bags of trash around her she has severe injury to mostly her lower body there's some bruises like on her face and upper body but not nearly as significant as all of the um all of the injuries to the, her lower body, including the fact that her right foot was almost completely severed. Blurf. And so she is found, her pants are pulled down around uh, below her knees, her oh. jeans. Um, and there's clearly a trail of blood, which suggests that she went down the chute through the compactor into one of the bins, managed to tip over the bin to get out oh. and was like crawling, trying to get out of this room when she died ultimately from blood loss from her injuries. Oh my goodness. Um, So police, you know, cordon off the scene. In fact, when paramedics arrive, the paramedic who, 
you know, like walks up is going to go in to check the body. And the police officer actually stops the paramedic and says, you can't go in. That's a crime scene. And the paramedic's like, what are you talking about? Like, I have to check the body. And they're like, no, it's you can't go in. It's a crime scene. We know that the, the body is dead. So here's something that is incredibly upsetting. Mm. After this discovery by Beth, the concierge of Phoebe's body, not one person, so not Beth, not a paramedic, not a cop, not one person laid a single finger on Phoebe to make sure that she was in fact dead. So we don't, you know, or just to see like, was she warm? Was she cold? All of these things that are important in determining like time of death. And the fact that it would have taken five to 10 minutes after she came through the shoot to like, that they guesstimate that's how long it would have taken for her to bleed out and eventually succumb to her injuries. But there was like a chance. What if she had just gone through, you know, like she could have been alive yeah. when she was found and we'll never know because nobody checked her body. Oh my goodness. Um, so that to me is just like heart wrenching, but also will create so many issues with the timeline because how are you ever going to estimate time of death if no one ever touched her to see like has rigor mortis set in, you know, like all of these things that mm. seem like, Police 101 that anyone would know from like even just watching basic like crime shows. Um, then around like eight o'clock, remember how Ant had ordered some takeout? Well, he gets a call from this young dude who's like, Hey, I'm really sorry, man. I'm here with your food, but I can't get into your building. There are like cops everywhere. I don't know what's going on, but I, I don't know how I'm supposed to come upstairs to give you your food. And Ant's like, Oh, my girlfriend is missing. I wonder. I should go down and talk to them. So he comes downstairs, approaches a cop or whatever, mentions that um, he got home and his girlfriend wasn't home, but her stuff was there. Is there any chance that this woman that, that had been found was his girlfriend? He kind of describes the girlfriend. Um, eventually, they are able to, between like some tattoos that she had and some piercings that she had, kind of figure out that it is Phoebe. Aunt is obviously devastated. He starts calling. You know, he calls Len. And tells her that they found her and that she's dead. And then, of course, you know, Len calls Natalie. Natalie is unbelievably devastated. She collapsed, you know, to the ground crying, no, no, it can't be true. Her partner, Russ, had to, like, physically pick her up and carry her inside. Um, the whole family is devastated. Meanwhile, Beth, the concierge, is also devastated because she's the one that discovered this. And I guess to try to, like, comfort her around 9.30 p.m. So let's remember, 7 o'clock, her body is found. At 9.30 p.m., she is told by a police officer at the scene, don't feel bad. There's nothing you could have done. She did. She killed herself. So, at, with you know, we're talking two and a half hours from the time she was found this police officer at least has decided that this is a suicide uh hmm. this yeah which is already just like you just can't jump to those kinds of conclusions like uh, there's never ever 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 in the history of australia been a, a case of someone dying by suicide in a garbage chute. It's never happened before not doesn't seem like a practical or um easy or just a way that anyone would do that one uh and also, it's, you know, like, look at her apartment. So they've gone in upstairs, you know, once they've established, they found the blood, the broken glass. Um, they also noticed, like, there was a little bit of, like, smudges of blood on the outside handle of the door to, like, where you would go in to the chute, up to the garbage room. Um, and there are some, like, dirty, large footprints leading away from the front door of their apartment. Now... Immediately upon hearing about his granddaughter's death, Lauren Campbell, Phoebe's grandfather, who also happens to be a retired detective who worked for 30 years with the Melbourne Police Department, he hears about how his granddaughter was found in the garbage room having fallen through the chute and immediately thinks somebody has killed my granddaughter. That's his first instinct. His first instinct is not suicide. His first is instinct is not freak accident somebody has killed her yeah, like that sounds sure. so when he starts asking police about you know like the investigation and like what how what is the answer to this so here is what he's like did you get cctv footage um they didn't in fact eric the manager who had returned as soon as beth called him and told him what she found 
told police that night that if they wanted the CCTV footage, they would need to start downloading it right away because their system would tape over itself in 48 hours. And police basically like, they're like, okay, sure, dude, thanks. Brush it off. Don't bother to try to get the CCTV footage until several days later when it is too late. They don't bother uh, testing the blood on the com- uh, on the computer. They do test a little bit of blood on the floor, um, and it is Phoebe's, but they don't test the blood that's like found on the computer, which, you know, maybe that wasn't hers. Maybe that was whoever did this to her, if someone did this to her. Um, they don't seize her phone or the laptop. They just leave it there. Uh, they don't attempt to find, like, they don't go through any of the trash that was around her to, like, maybe see if she had gone in there to, like, throw something away, you know, because basically a working theory was that she had broken a glass, cut herself trying to clean it up, which explained the blood on the floor, and then had gone to the refuse room to throw it away and then went into the chute. Mm. Um, So that is basically what police are kind of like, that's their working theory. However, there are two glasses, not broken, sitting on the table, and they do not dust them for prints or test the contents of the glasses, which still have some liquid in them. And one did smell kind of like vodka. Okay, so those are all the things they didn't do. What they did do was jump to conclusions that it was a suicide pretty much immediately, um, which basically to them meant there's nothing to see here, nothing to investigate. In fact, one officer even noticed the night of, of her death that he went back to like get another statement from aunt and all of a sudden like a bunch of his family members and friends were there and they were like, how did they get here? So they also didn't secure the scene. They didn't secure the scene downstairs in the refuse um, room or their apartment. So people could come and go. Everything could be contaminated and nothing is being preserved. Uh, And no one can ever explain how these people got in because remember the key fob thing? Like how would these people get into this building? I did see in one of the documentaries that I guess the security system had been compromised when that fire alarm went off, like that maybe it hadn't been fully rebooted. And so there is a chance that I guess you could people were able to get in and out um, without having that, which also begs the question, then could a stranger have gotten into the building earlier and done something to her? Uh, So the coroner doesn't actually rule the death a suicide. He rules it like an accidental death. And they're like, that's that. The family is like, absolutely no way. What are you talking about? Specifically her grandfather, who's a police officer, who recognizes all of the things that they didn't do. So he, on his own, actually contacts the, the uh, sorry, the maker of this specific type of shoot to ask him, you know, like, is is it possible that somebody could go through that he goes so far as to actually have it recreated and gets a couple of uh phoebe's friends who are about the same size as her so that they try to get into the shoot and vanya i sent you some pictures you can see it is so small these girls are you know in good shape completely sober because that's another thing in her toxicology um report she had 0.1 her alcohol blood alcohol level was 0.16 which is three times the legal driving amount and she had a um still in her system which is basically like ambien it's like the australian ambien but she had like a regular amount not like an overdose amount like one or two capsules but she clearly was impaired right so she's got she's severely impaired and so the argument that the grandfather is saying is like these perfectly sober girls are struggling like crazy to get into this shoot. And it, and ultimately they all kind of end up needing help. At least like he has to hold it open so that the door doesn't slam shut on their fingers. Um, She had no bruising to her fingers. And I also realized I forgot to mention something that's really important. There were zero fingerprints on the garbage chute, on the wall near the garbage chute. And one, if she got in herself, her fingerprints would be there. Exactly. But the fact that there are no fingerprints. Somebody cleaned up the scene. So it means, would suggest that somebody cleaned it up, right? So the case is basically closed except for the family refusing to accept this. They 
They get some, you know, media people to cover the story. The public becomes interested in it. And they eventually raise enough money on their own. Like her mother, Natalie, between like GoFundMes and her own savings comes up with $50,000 and they request like a formal inquest into her death, like where they have to go to court and all of the evidence has to be presented in public which is how we have most of the information that we have about this case. Uh, for the, And then they want the coroner to, to rule it, you know, like, or at least an, uh, we don't know what happened to her, so we'll leave it open. Because there are certainly times where it's like the cause of death is undetermined, sure. but that means that at any time the case can be investigated. So, and immediately after the death of Phoebe, they, there becomes a lot of tension between the two families, okay? So... They get together for what Natalie and Len think is going to be, you know, like just a time to like remember and, you know, like comfort each other when immediately George Hample and Stad, former Supreme Court judge, just starts like mentioning over and over again, she was such a troubled girl. It's so sad that she would that she would commit suicide. Um, and like they just kind of over and over and over again say, saying she killed herself when at the time that had not been determined and ultimately would never be what was determined but it seemed weird to them they were like pushing that narrative mm-hmm. uh and when they went to go identify her body the um coroner had said you know like we're gonna have to perform an autopsy len her dad was a psychiatrist and a doctor and so kind of had a little bit of an idea and he was like oh i don't want you to cut my baby open you know and he was like well the police requested it so it's going to be done plus uh next of kin or like senior next of kin are the ones who get to make those decisions. And we already got that permission from aunt and they're like, excuse me. He's not. Well, apparently he applied to be her senior next of kin because they were in a de facto relationship, meaning they were like in a significant enough relationship that he would be somehow supersede her parents and making decisions about her body. Um, And so they basically have to go through him to like get her remains he gets the death benefits, which eventually he does give to her brothers. But he had his dad, like, write a letter to verify this de facto relationship. And the dad, like, misrepresented how long they were together. But he said that they'd been living together six months before they even met each other. And I'm sure it was, like, an accident. He was just trying to help his son out. But, uh, you know, he's, like, a a serious, like, judge-type dude. Like, you shouldn't make mistakes like that. Yeah. And also it seems weird that you are, that aunt is kind of gunning to be the one that has to be gone through when it comes to all things Phoebe in her death. So tensions are so high that they actually end up throwing two separate memorials for her because her parents are not invited to the one that aunt has for her. Gross. Yeah. So he throws a memorial for her at a yacht club. Some friends that went were like, I felt sick to my stomach that I chose to go to this one. Like the photos that were being showed just didn't. They didn't even look like her. It was like the her that he wanted her to be. It seemed like everybody there didn't even know Phoebe and it was more about aunt. But then her her family threw her what I think is like the cool, like the most wonderful like send off ever. So her father was Norwegian and he built her her very own um, Viking boat, oh, which cool. they then put her they put her ashes in this boat and they uh, all the letters that friends and family wrote that they wanted her to take with her. They put in the boat, they draped it in marigolds and then they put it out into the um, water, lit it on fire and like gave her a Vikings funeral. And she always, uh, she referred to herself as like, she is a Xena warrior princess and her mom in this amazing podcast where I got so much of this information called Phoebe's fall. It's like a six part investigative podcast Mm. done by some journalists in Australia who really brought a lot of this information to the public, which is why people are still talking about this and demanding, you know, that they look back into it. Um, So they gave her a warrior's funeral. I actually like cried listening to the episode just because it was like you could hear the emotion in everyone's voice and like just the visual of, you know, this beautiful like send off. She loved this lake where where they had the had the send off and they call it like Phoebe's farewell was really, really beautiful and special for the family okay so years basically you know go by before they're able to get this inquest but they do they are granted it a public inquest is finally granted and some things come out in this inquest 
um, about evidence that was discovered like well after the fact. So as I mentioned, when Phoebe was found, her pants were down below her knees. I was going now, to say, that is if you take a look at that picture crazy. I sent you to, that first one where she's climbing in, oh, yeah. how could she possibly climb in if her pants are below her knees? That would basically... Impossible. She wouldn't be able to separate her legs, right? Um, but apparently there was a piece of paper in the pocket of those pants that no one bothered to turn over to investigators until seven months after her uh, death that had a phone number on it. And so by the time they get this phone number, they trace it to a name and address that turn out to be a fake name and an address that doesn't exist. And it's a total dead end. They try to see if they can trace back to see who bought the phone. They can't figure it out. But it's seven months later. And as we know, Phoebe did enjoy partying. Um, And so like, what if that had been like a drug dealer's phone number? Right. Yeah. You know, and then something happened in the apartment and now we'll never know. Um, we found out that right after she died, when they failed to take her computer or phone for analysis, um, her younger brother was like, F this and I want to know what's going on. And he hacked into her email. Every email was deleted. There was it was a completely empty email folder. So somebody went in, deleted everything and none of this would have happened if police had just, I don't know, taken the evidence at the scene. So it's a little bit different, the legal system, Vaughn, mm. there, because it's like a coroner to me is just the person that's like, here's the body, here's what I determine cause of death to be. But I guess there's like a little bit more, They it almost felt like this was a trial, but this was just the coroner's going to make a final decision on the cause of death, but in this in this trial and he actually had um an assistant like assistant counsel sorry i'm gonna find this i wanted to read this uh to you okay so at the very end of this inquest where clearly at the very least there are no answers nothing definitive can be can be known at this point but the evidence presented and the evidence that we'll never have so that cctv footage that they never requested in time and then it got taped over well eventually they were like maybe we could get oh no it was her grandfather that was like we could try to do like a deep dive and see if we could recover something this was 18 months later so eric goes to get that the dvr and it's missing and they can't find it so just weird little things that are like why if this had just been treated as not a suicide immediately then we would have evidence we would have stuff to work with but I guess coroner Peter White didn't uh think so because after this inquest that had taken years to make happen a ton of hard work on the part of the family to raise the funds to do it on December 10th 2014 four years and eight days after Phoebe died Coroner Peter White found that she had climbed unassisted into the rubbish chute while in a sleepwalking state, fell down feet first, and this was due to a consumption of alcohol and still knocks. So his whole thing was that he believed that because side effects of still knocks, a.k.a. Ambien here in the States, people do do weird things or sometimes have delusions. Um, But most experts say that the things that you do in your sleep, like sleepwalk or sleep clean or sleep eat, they're muscle memory things, things that you do in everyday life. So something like climbing into a garbage chute Mm. isn't something anybody does. And so experts actually, when when this comes out, are like, that's garbage. I'm sorry. That was the wrong choice of words. Mm -hmm. That's that's bullshit. Yeah. Um, But that he is sticking to it. He blames her entire death on still knocks and alcohol causing her to inadvertently cause her own death, meaning like no one's responsible. He said her penchant for climbing likely caused her to enter the chute without having any intention to cause herself harm. He ruled out suicide or the involvement of any third party, and he did this against the findings of his assisting counsel, a woman named Deborah um, C. Menzma. So Deborah felt that the combination of evidence, including unexplained bruises to Phoebe's upper arms, the blood in the apartment, and the lack of fingerprints on the chute, and the inadequacies of the initial police investigation, did not enable a positive finding to be made on the balance of probabilities as to the involvement of Mr. Hample or any other third party. 
So basically what she's saying is we just don't know. There's no way to tell. We cannot say yes or no to this. She continues with, that is not to say that he, meaning Ant, had any involvement, but rather there is an inability to exculpate on the balance of probabilities, adding that aspects of Mr. Hample's evidence that were unsatisfactory. So basically what she's saying is we need to leave this open. Yeah. But in a weird almost never seen a move, the coroner goes against the advice of his assisting counsel and officially declares her death as death by misadventure, which means an accident. And that means, you guys, that the case is closed, that the that the police are not investigating it. The only real way now for for this to be reopened is someone would have to come forward with new evidence. Someone would have to come forward and confess. But otherwise, police are no longer investigating this because it was ruled an accident. But this case got some more um, media coverage when in 2018, a 25-year-old model named Bailey Schneider was found dead in her parents' kitchen with a gold cord wrapped around her neck Two hours after she broke up with her boyfriend, Aunt Hample. She was discovered by her family, and her death was ruled a suicide, which her parents vehemently denied. The cord wrapped around her neck was attached to nothing. She was just sitting in the kitchen with a cord around her neck like she had been strangled. They officially got the um, results or the ruling that it was suicide overturned in 2019, and so her case is reopened. Uh, there hasn't been a whole lot of like movement since then. I think COVID probably had part to do with that since it all kind of came back up in late 2019 and then the world closed down. But I do want to make sure I mentioned that, you know, Aunt Hample has never been named as a suspect or a person of interest in either one of these cases. And so I am not trying to suggest that he did these things. I'm just presenting information that is out in the world. And also the fact that this Phoebe case kind of became huge in 2016 with the podcast, Phoebe's fall and all the media coverage. But then again, the ruling was what it was and there was nothing that could be done. And then another girlfriend of his died under mysterious, suspicious circumstances. And it kind of brought back everything. So that is the mysterious death of Phoebe Hansjuck. And I just really, truly hope I truly, truly, truly hope that um, there was a couple of laws of like how coroners, because they wanted to appeal his finding. But the thing is, is that if you appeal and you lose and literally like 90% of people who appeal a coroner's decision lose, the cost of of appealing falls to you. So if they appealed this and lost, it would cost them almost $200,000 in legal fees, which they could not afford to do. And so people were outraged about this and they're trying to change the laws to make it easier for families to appeal like coronials, what they call them, coronial decisions without it being, you know, like financially devastating. So hopefully that happens and they can appeal and get her case reopened. But as of right now, it's on somebody coming forward with new information. And then I do want to just end with one final thing sure before we move on so at the very end and i highly recommend that you check out this podcast phoebe's fall if you want a lot more information also tons of like first person accounts you know with her family and stuff like that uh so aunt's sister chrissy knew phoebe obviously they dated for 18 months and she posted on facebook a photo of her and Phoebe with this caption. In loving memory, I just stumbled across my favorite pic of beautiful Phoebe. I miss you, darling. You are a fragile little flower that no one watered. You and your family were let down by the justice system and those who represent it. I only hope that one day the truth will come out so that they may have some peace. And that post was deleted within hours. And anytime anyone's tried to talk to Chrissy, Um, about any of this she has declined to comment but that post actually is what kind of inspired the journalists like we need to look into this like there's something there if like the sister is saying like the truth needs to come out about what happened here now whatever that is we I'm not suggesting that she even necessarily knows but that she just knows like that 
the proceedings and everything that happened were just such garbage. So that post, which was deleted, which I also think is, you know, interesting. Somebody is um, bullying somebody all, all around. I know, yeah. you know. And another thing, again, sorry, I, I feel like I keep going. I'm like, we're done. That's the end. But another thing, <laughs> this I watched so many things and listened to so many things. So thank you, 60 Minutes Australia and Under Investigation, and most specifically, Phoebe's Fall. Please check out any and all of those things for more information on this. Um, I lost my train of thought, so I don't know what I was going to tell you about it. So we will just end it there. Okay. Well, no. We're going to end it. We're just going to end it and say, like, if anybody knows anything, come forward. If any of our Australian listeners um, have more information that you would like to share with us that we can then share with the rest of our listeners, I would love any new updates on this. Uh, I find this to be utterly unimaginable for her family and just it just feels like a real injustice yeah and I guess just a side note probably don't date that guy I would probably not date that guy if I were you any 25 year olds out there it sounds like that's his type don't do it don't date him <laughs> he might kill you seems like that I know that's not what you're saying or or, implying, it, or you or yeah maybe he didn't do it but there's some bad juju around there you him go. how there about you that go. I'll give you that okay so in that vein, hearing that story, that's fascinating. And um, I didn't listen to the, or I didn't read the whole thing, but um, Avern had sent me a little uh, article, so I started to read it. And um, I mean, I feel like I hope this isn't insensitive, like coming from. I know. I was just having that thought where yeah, I was like, I think does this not work? The other because way we talk about be, a crime yeah. and then we're like. All right, moving on to a funny movie. So, yeah, this, you we'll know, see. this is something we'll, we wanted to try. Wait, you guys let us know. Wait. If this does not work, we're, we're not, we're open to constructive exactly. criticism. Because I, um, I chose, the movie I chose, the rom-com I chose to pair with this is uh, because I just started reading, you know, the article and the way that Beth, the concierge, found her thinking she was a mannequin. Mm-hmm. I just went from there and I didn't actually listen to any more, read any more of the story. So I... I am covering the rom-com Mannequin from 1987. Jonathan Switcher loves to talk to his work. You know, you're the first thing I've created and made me feel like an artist. Don't you like your new scarf? He never expected. Not especially. To hear it talk back. I really think I'm going crazy. I am so glad you're working here. I never thought they'd hire anyone stranger than me. You're the only one who could see me like this. To the rest of the world, he's a disaster. You're quiet! And she's a dummy. You were one sick puppy. But together... Hey, don't do that. You weren't so shy when you were creating me. You weren't so real. They make magic. Look at him with the dummy. Who are you to criticize? That new stock boy, and I just want you to keep an eye on him for me. I think I'm gonna handle things my own way. All the girl mannequins disappeared from the windows last night. Film at 11. Yes, my dear, your favorite. She is gone too. Get him! You are magic. He's talking to the dummy again. Andrew McCarthy, Kim Cattrall. You know I would never bother you when you're getting a piece of wood. Mannequin. Stars um, Andrew McCarthy, Kim Cattrall, Estelle Getty, which guys, that's Sophia from Golden Girls. Um, James Spader's in it. Uh, Meshach Taylor, who was on Designing Women. He plays Hollywood in this. Okay, so I'll tell you a little bit more about it. But this movie, people um, did not, like, like even back when it came out, people did not love, I guess. It's on the, <laughs> on the Rotten Tomatoes, it's got 20% uh, on the tomato meter, and then the audience score is 55%. But I, I think this movie was catered to young kids because <laughs> I have reasons for this. I, I've seen that this movie, like, as many times as I watch, as I've watched Overboard, I'm not kidding. Oh wow! Because it was just—I was like, I think I've seen it. Once. I think it was on TV. Oh my god! I think we might ha- might have had the DVD. Now here's the interesting thing: it is not available to stream anywhere. You could you have to rent the DVD. I ended up like piecemealing watching, rewatching it again on YouTube. You can watch like five <sighs> five minute in, 
increments. Um, so there must be something with the copyright or who owns the rights to it. Right. So it's really hard to find. But um, but I really enjoy, I love this movie, and so I'm gonna. But I but there are obviously problems whenever you go back uh, into especially mm-hmm. the 80s. Um, so this movie starts off in ancient Egypt, and Emma Hesire, it's Emmy, she's a young princess, and she's in a pyramid hiding from her mom. Um, so so we're all the back, way back in the, in the Egyptian days, and I, honest to God, did not remember this. I did not remember this is how this started. Um, oh. I was like, oh my God. I was, I was a little bit, like, shocked, but okay, so her parents, she's, so she's hiding because... Um, there's an arranged marriage and she doesn't want to marry this guy who's apparently like a camel dung dealer and her mom, so she runs away and so she prays to the- Wait, I'm so sorry. A camel what dealer? Dung, yeah, camel dung poop. And she's supposed to be a oh, princess. That's so what like, I thought you said, yeah. but I just, I didn't know if I missed, I, that's what I thought I heard. And okay, a camel dung dealer. So first of all, this is Kim Cattrall playing Emmy and I'm like, I- it would have been nice to see any Middle Eastern representation, but whatever. I guess that I, I mean, this is the thing. They whitewash everything in Hollywood, and it's hilarious that you're just like, wait, what? Anyways, so she prays to the Egyptian gods, like, please, I don't want to marry this guy. I want to be united with my true love. And so she suddenly vanishes right before her mom's eyes. And then we cut to, well, first there's like a title sequence that's like, Seriously, it's cartoons. It's just literal cartoons, and it's got fun music. I, I'm i like, okay. So this is, again, for um, kids, I think. Uh, okay. And so this, when she disappears, this is either a blessing or a curse because she basically floats around through the centuries, popping up to be a muse for different men in the in whatever. So we don't really know, but like – we think this is like, oh, you know, feminist. She's, you know, I don't want to marry anybody I don't want. But then it seems like she's just kind of like pops up to be there to help men throughout the, the centuries. That's just what I thought. I don't know. So anyways, it t- this takes place in Philly, Philadelphia, present day. And we see Jonathan Switcher, who is um, Andrew McCarthy, and he's a, a sculptor. But Ooh. he can't seem to keep a job. He keeps getting fired. So the first job he has, he's sculpting, building a mannequin. And it is this beautiful mannequin that looks just like Kim Cattrall. And he's so proud of, but he gets fired because he only, he's only doing like making one model a day or one uh, mannequin a day. And he should be making like a bunch an hour or something like that. So, and then we see him get fired, a montage of all that. And one, one night after his motorcycle, it breaks down in the rain. He passes by these department store windows um, of this department store called Prince and Company, and he sees his mannequin in the store window. So he's like, I'll see you. I'm coming back for you because he just loves her. So he he ends up getting a job. He'll He's like, I'll do whatever you want. And this his first scene is with um, Estelle Getty. She's so cute. I love this actor, you know, actress. She's like, what? You, She's the best. You want a job? Okay. So Estelle is the pre- president and the owner of uh, Prince, a new, newly president, because her grandfather passed away and she was taking, or her father passed away and she's taking over. Um, the company, Prince and, and Prince and Company, is not doing great. So they're looking at investors to come in to buy. But for now, she takes pity on this young man and is like, yeah, you can start. She, he's like, I'll do anything. So, um, so he goes in and he, let's see, the, the next morning, Jonathan returns to the store. Yes. So he saves the life of the owner and that's, her name's Claire. So that's why she gave him the job. And he finds the mannequin in the store that he made. And he's surprised when, guess what, guys? Her spirit comes to life when he's alone with her. <laughs> what? I love that, like, at the, at the core so far, it sounds like this is you know, like an 80s version of like the sex doll movies yeah. that were being made in like the two, early 2000s. Because like, who's going to drive by a window, see a mannequin and be like, I'll see you soon, honey. Yeah. You know, and then figure out how to get a job so we can be in the well, same. That's just kind of creepy. It's a, it's a weird. Apparently the uh, director, um, he's a co-writer, wrote this because he walked by a, a store and was like, I f- he felt like the the mannequin was looking at him or moving his. But this is also a bit like loosely based on Pygmalion, which was it was like an ancient uh, Greek 
legend of Pygmalion is a sculptor who shapes this ivory statue of a woman and he falls in love with her. So he's basically like making the most beautiful woman. And then the goddess Aphrodite gives it life and Pygmalion marries her. So, oh, okay. Yeah, so that's, right. that's it's kind of based on that and it's based on. So it's not some weird fetish thing. I mean, it probably <laughs> is. It's, it's the idea of like a guy just creating his own perfect woman. Right. You know, which is kind of like. like the, yeah, like get over yourself, dude. Exactly. Like there's no existing woman good enough for you. You have to create one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So Emmy explains that she has existed for centuries as a muse and sometimes possessing the works of an artist she admires and inspires. So Emmy then explains that the gods allow her life when she is alone, only alone with Jonathan. Um, and he thinks he's crazy. And... Uh, People who watch the movie. And no one else can can back him up because every time someone else comes around, she's a mannequin. That's right. So then he wakes up the next morning to a amazingly designed window display with tennis equipment and like she's got there's like robotics in there and everyone in the in Philadelphia is now like, Oh my god, this window's amazing. And guess what? Sales are going up. Well, ooh, just ooh. so happens that the department store around the corner, Illustra, uh, was uh, hoping to buy Prince and Company. And so they're like, what's mm-hmm. happening? I don't understand. Um, and, oh, by the way, this is where we meet one of the characters that's kind of like such a stereotype. It's crazy. But this character, who is also a display designer, his name is Hollywood. And uh, he's just like over the top, um, very like he's gay, but he's like, extremely over the top in a way that it's like a caricature of itself. And I remember being a kid just loving it because he he was like, Hollywood, come and get me, Hollywood. And I was like, oh, my God, I am Hollywood. I don't know why that's who I identified myself as. But but in reality, it's when you watch it back, you're like, damn, this is it's not it's it's not realistic. And anyways, um, so, yes. So she designs the window. We said that. He so Jonathan gets promoted to like a visual mer- merchandiser because you know Estelle Getty is like oh my god he's gonna save my company. Um, but she did it right, not him. She did it. Kim Cattrall exactly. did the window. Yeah. So okay. apparently she. So was now he's taking credit for her work. Exactly, she's an artist. <laughs> and so it's nighttime. This is when this you know he's doing all the redos of the windows and whatnot. And he goes to kiss her, and she's like backing away, and she like sits on all the um, equipment, the sound equipment, and it starts this huge montage of them like trying on different outfits. I mean, they're in a department store, remember? So it's like everything, uh, which, you know, mm-hmm. I love. Mon- you guys, I, love I was like, who montage. doesn't love a montage? Especially like uh, we're in a department store. Let's try everything on. Montage. Yes. And the song is uh, Do You Dream About Me? play dress up run around the store Hollywood catches them and she turns back into a mannequin and we learn that only Jonathan can see her as a human yes of course and Emmy the mannequin and Jonathan save Prince company the window displays bring all the customers it's wonderful now Jonathan has an ex-girlfriend and this this woman is Carol Davis she (laughs) she's plays this like um uptight she works for Illustra by the way and she's dating Jonathan, but she's always like kind of judging him because he only has a motorcycle and he never has a job and all these things. Those are perfectly, I think, concerning. Yeah. Things in a partner. I'm, like you can't keep a job. Agreed. That's, that's you know, I mean, I know you're an artist. And the way that her character, this ex-girlfriend or Jonathan's ex-girlfriend, um, Roxy is her name, is portrayed as just, I feel bad for her, but she works under the boss, the main guy for Illustra. And so she's just trying to get a leg up and trying to do whatever T- dealing with a ton of sexual harassment from from one of the guys she worked, one of her colleagues. It's just uncomfortable. I feel really, really bad for her. Um, but she is, he's like, find some dirt. We need to get this guy. We need to bring him over. Jonathan, we want to hire him for our windows. So she goes and sneaks in, somehow gets into the um, department store at night and takes photos of, of Jonathan and the uh, mannequin, Emmy, but like rolling around kind of like in a sexual way. And it looks like they're doing something dirty. 
But mm-hmm. because back to sex dolls. Exa- <laughs> well, that's the truth. And because everything's going so well, um, the owner of the company, Estelle Getty, hires Jonathan to be the VP of Prince and Co. Because it is popping in there now. And guess what? He's also in love with his creation. He's in love with the mannequin. But it's harder and harder for them to get be together. And, you know, Emmy knows the deal. She knows what the gods have for her next. She's going to be popping into somebody else's life probably pretty soon. So he takes Emmy out on the town all, and on his motorcycle. And it's a funny scene where he's like, when people see him, he has an actual mannequin behind him. And otherwise, it's like, you know, Kim Cattrall. Um, and then they get back and... Uh, oh, he sees his ex-girlfriend on the way out with the mannequin on the back of his motorcycle. And Roxy's like, come on, just come and work for these guys because she's trying to sort of play both sides. But yet she still has this weird jealousy of, of Jonathan and the mannequin. And he's like, I could never do it. I love the people I work with. I'm, I want to stay at Prince and Company. And she leaves. She, you know, goes off with her colleague who's like, gross and she's like I guess I'll have sex with you ew I I just felt bad for this the way this character was Roxy was written but anyways Kim Cattrall I'm sorry Emmy and Jonathan they boink in a hammock so it's like alluded to that there was sexual things happening Mm -hmm. Um, he talks about how she has inspired him to do just so many great things and that and now he has confidence and yeah and she's like I better get back to the window but you know they had made love and um, you know so it's it's sort of like it's weirdly. Is it awkward now? It's weirdly them? earnest. Well, she. I think they're trying to be like she's sad because she know it could never be so. And then, um, let's see. He wakes up the next morning because she's already, you know, left back in the window. And she's and he's like naked in like a big pile of furs. And everybody who works at the department store is like looking at him. But they also know he's the VP now, and he also saved the company. So when he wakes up, everyone claps. Yay. And Hollywood knows that he loves the mannequin. And Hollywood's like, I don't judge you. Whatever you got to do, you got to do. But by the way, bro, all the women mannequins were stolen last night from the window. And he's like, holy shit, no, what? So Jonathan is like off. He he runs off to Illustra because he knows exactly where they took, you know, because so his ex-girlfriend Roxy yells, you know what? You're never going to see her again. And he, she like runs. I mean, in, it, I think it's hilarious in comedic form. form she's like walking all fast through the, the Illustra mall or whatever. Mm. And she gets to the, I guess, warehouse area and puts all the ma- mannequins in like this wood chipper, I guess, that you would ha- have oh. there. And so it's going and it's <clears throat> and somehow she gets like garbage. She is thrown on Roxy. So she's out of the picture. Jonathan runs up to try and save her and all of the sudden, like when it's, we think she's going to die and the wood chipper is going to get her and everything's going to be lost. Emmy suddenly becomes alive. and she, Oh my God, so now she's a live yes, woman going into a wood chipper? Exactly. So now they're like, holy shit, like I have to save you. And the idiot like work warehouse, warehouse worker shuts everything off and he's like, die. Oh, I thought that was a mannequin. I guess it's a person, which... There's another guy up there. You should probably turn it off. Anyways, but she thanks the gods. She's like, thank you. She knows what this means, right? This means that she is finally free of her time travel as a muse. Oh, she found her true love. Yes. And security and the police who have been hilariously running around the store and trying to get through, they burst into the door, burst into the warehouse. And um, everyone sees that Emmy is real. So he's not a crazy person. Um, by the way, James Spader plays a role in this. He plays the manager that was of the uh, first department store, and he moves over to Lester, and he's just a hilarious character. Um, just, I think it's important to say that, you know, James Spader is a good actor. I think we all know that. Um, yeah, he's great. <laughs> and then the end. He really is great. Right? I mean, just, I, I love somebody who can really make a character. Um, then the ending is Jonathan and Emmy get married in the window of the department store and Hollywood is the officiant and the music plays.
it was nominated. So everyone hated this movie, right? Like most people really didn't like this movie. I mean, I loved it. I'm saying that right now. I I totally buy that a mannequin could wake up. Somehow it's beautiful and loving to me as a seven-year-old. I don't know how old it was. Eight, nine. Um. Anyways, so it was. this song was nominated for uh, Academy Award for Best Original Song as well as Golden Globe and Grammy nominated for Best Song written specifically for a motion picture or television. It's, it's a great song. It's a great song. It's a silly movie. I love the 80s. I love the costumes. Um, it's, yeah, it's nuts. But guess what? I don't know. I thought it was fun. <laughs> um, and then, let's see. Here's, here's one review. Time Out. It says, this pitiful... This pitifully unfunny comedy has only two things going for it. Its themes, its theme song, like we just talked about, Starship's Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now, is a hit single and it is short. Cottrell plays an Egyptian princess who, back in 2514 BC, is saved by the gods from being married off to a dung dealer and turns up as a dummy in a Philadelphia department store window. McCarthy, a frustrated artist who had a hand in her fashioning, is enchanted to discover that she might, that she comes alive at night. In between dressing up and undressing one another, the pair also dress a few of the ailing store's windows, thereby reviving its fortunes and thwarting the takeover plans of aver- av- avaricious, avaricious, is that a word? A-V-A-V-A-V-A-V-A-V-A-V-A-V-A-V-A-V-A-V-A-V-A-V-A-V-A-V-A-V-A-V-A-V-A-V-A-V-A-V-A-V-A-V-A-V-A-V-A-V-